the outline there in front of you should say a portrait of opposition. As I said, we are currently exploring, as you know, the book of Mark. Uh, Mark, which is one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the 25th sermon in Mark. Uh, and so, as we did on the, during the 17th sermon, it is important to, again, just remind ourselves where we are. Uh, seven, seven, eight sermons later, it is easy to forget where we are in Mark. It's very important that we keep in mind the flow of the book. Uh, let us remember that Mark is divided, uh, well, according to us, is divided in three parts. Uh, Mark chapter 1 to verse 8 is telling us something about Jesus' mission in Galilee. From chapter 8 to verse 10, it covers his journey into Jerusalem. And that will be an exciting journey indeed when we come to that. Uh, we are long further away from that. After that, uh, we look at Mark chapter 11 to chapter 16, which is Jesus now in Jerusalem. Uh, we'll learn about his death and his resurrection. And so that is the general framework of Mark. I have these three parts in mind. We are in very much still in the first part of Mark, the mission in Galilee. And let us also keep in mind that in chapter 1, we learned an important truth of why Jesus has come. We learned that Jesus is God coming to reign. That is at the heart of Mark. To understand all of Mark, we have to bear in mind that this is what's happening. Jesus has come to establish his kingdom here on earth. In fact, the key verse in this first section of Mark is Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to verse 15. When Jesus comes in and says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Or believe in the gospel and repent, whichever way you want to arrange those words. And as we've seen already that the headquarters of Jesus' ministry is in Capernaum. All the action in Mark up to this point is all happening in Capernaum. And we've seen that the work of Jesus is growing. The ministry is growing. But as the ministry grows, opposition is also growing. We know the ministry is growing because we've seen the large crowds. And we've seen Jesus has appointed these 12 men to be his arms, legs, and feet to the world to do his work, to empower them. The mission, the 12 disciples who we look, we've looked at in the last five sermons. Uh, but as well as that growth now, there is coming opposition. When some, God is doing something, opposition arises. But it's very important to understand that the opposition arising, to, the opposition to Jesus is actually multifaceted, isn't it? It's, it's coming from all sorts of directions. We are aware of the Pharisees and the Herodians already coming together in Mark chapter 3, verse 6 to, to, to oppose Jesus. But we need to keep in mind that there's just one element of the opposition to Jesus. This evening we'll see other elements beginning to surface. And that is important for us to understand that, I think, because we need to understand that we need to look at this opposition of Jesus and understand it because it helps us examine our lives. We need to know um, how we also, in some way, opposing Jesus. That's an, a very important question. Often when we think about the opposition to Jesus, 
we tend to think of it as, okay, what can we learn from that in terms of how the world then opposes us? And I think that's important and we'll look at that in Mark. But this evening, I want us to look at Mark chapter 3, verse 19 to 20, within the overall context of this passage, that actually we ourselves might be involved in opposition. So I want to paint a a portrait of opposition to Jesus, and I want to encourage us to examine ourselves. How are we living towards the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we people who are opposing him, or are we people who are helping his work in this world? And there are three things, they all start with S, you might be happy to hear that. In fact, they had four, but I dropped one of the verses, because three forms of opposition we see in these passages, and they all start with S. The first thing we see in this passage, in Mark chapter 3, verse 19 to 20, is that Jesus faces secret opposition. Jesus faces secret opposition. As we saw this morning, Mark has been telling us about Jesus' choice of 12 disciples. We see that from verse 13 on to verse, verse 19. And he has given us various names for these guys. We've met them already. Uh, but notice something. Mark has not tended to give any explanation about their character or anything. We have that with Boanerges, the sons of thunder. But apart from that, there's been very little until he comes to Judas Iscariot, who we met this morning. Let's read verse 19. He says this about Judas. And Jesus, of course, appointed Judas Iscariot, he says, who betrayed him. Now, when I read that, I thought that was interesting that Mark mentions this here. Because in most stories, we find out about the fate of the key characters, uh, what happens to them or how they treat the lead character towards the end of the story. That's how it tends to be written. Novels or whatever, or even historical accounts tend to follow that, that sort of thing. But with Judas, Matt tells us up front, this man Judas is a traitor. <laughs> we haven't even seen him betray the Lord yet, but he's flagging up, red alert. Bear this in mind as you read. And why does he do that, do you think? Why mention this very early on? Well, the reason is that he wants us to see that in the context of these verses, all of these verses are about opposition to Jesus. And what Mark wants us to see is that Jesus is facing not just opposition from outside, Jesus is facing secret opposition, even, first of all, among his followers. Now, in 2014, you may remember the American soldier, Bo Begdor, who had been held captive by the Taliban in Afghanistan. He had been held captive there since 2009. And then he was released as part of this prisoner exchange program. So the Americans let go five Taliban's, and um, they got their man back. And they got him back. And then it turned out a year later that actually the man they had got back was going to be tried for a court martial. And he'll be tried because he had deserted, actually, the enemy in Afghanistan. That's how he ended up being taken by the Taliban. He, he wasn't really even, you know, a, a, a doing his work. He had deserted the Americans. The man they thought was a hero out there fighting turned out, actually, to be um, 
an enemy, in fact. He, he was a half-hearted, as we saw this morning, a member of the American force, we would say. He had allowed himself to be captured by the enemy in order to support the enemy. This man was not a hero. And as we think about Judas in verse 19, it's the same thing. Jesus is facing the same situation as the American military. Uh, he's going to come under secret attack from a man who is now his follower. That's what Mark is telling us. Look out for Judas. He looks like he's with Jesus now, but actually later is going to turn against him. You see, even though, as we said this morning, Judas starts off as pro-Christ, in the end, he becomes a type of the anti-Christ who stands opposed to Christ and seeks to damage his people. And it's very important when we think of Judas that we realize that throughout the Bible we are warned that there are many people who say they belong to Jesus, but secretly oppose his agenda. Paul writing to the church at Philippi, in Philippians 3, verse 18 to 20, says this, one of the saddest, one of the most, one of the saddest parts of the Bible, it says this, Philippians 3, verse 18 to 20. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our true followers of Jesus... Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can go to many passages in the scripture. It's obvious that the devil's strategy against Jesus, number one strategy, has always been to unleash opposition to Jesus within the church by, listen, by not attacking it in any violent form, but by simply filling it with half-hearted followers of Jesus. Jude writing says this in Jude 3 to 4, verse 3 to 4 in Jude. It says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in and noticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be aware, beloved, that Satan's main strategy against Jesus is to fill the church with false followers who secretly work to undermine the work of God. There will always be, as I said this morning, Judases in churches. People who are baptized, who regularly attend church, who take the Lord's table, who become church members who look from the outside very zealous for the things of God and yet they belong to the domain of darkness. Such people who are not truly followers of Jesus are raw material for the devil like Judas. 
The devil uses them to create disunity, discouragement, and undermine the advancement of the kingdom of God. Wherever any church is being planted. And that's why, as a church, we, we should, of course, always love and welcome non-Christians. We, we need to love and welcome everyone who comes here. We must do that because God calls us to love and we have a mission to do, to share the good news. But friends, I want to encourage you to see this, that truly loving someone is to tell them that they must have a wholehearted approach to Jesus. We don't love people if we don't tell them the truth. It is not love to try and hash-hash on sin in our lives. True love means putting forth Christ before people. And tell them that no, true faith looks like this. And so, we must bear that in mind. But remember, we can't do this to people coming in if we ourselves are in the fellowship and not asking ourselves continually this question. Are we standing with Christ? Because you see, in order for us to ensure that the kingdom of God is advancing, we must start examining ourselves. This is not about you going around suspecting a sister or a brother, are they in the Lord? This is about asking yourself, am I standing in Christ? And more than that, are you allowing other people to put you under examination? Because you see, we need to ask other followers of Jesus to help us examine ourselves. We all have these cognitive biases that they talk about. It's very easy for me to say, yes, I'm standing in the Lord. But, they, they, but I need Brother Rob, I need Brother Michael, I need to be asking, how oh, is my walk? And we need these followers to hold us to account. You need to open up your life to other people in the church to help you truly examine yourselves. And I suspect many of us hate to be in such accountable relationship because we already know we owed some secret opposition to Jesus. There are many reasons why we are not vulnerable with one another, but I think the fundamental reason is that we look in our hearts and we already see secret opposition. Why do I say that? Because if you are desiring truly to be like Jesus, why would you not want God's people to help you become like Jesus? Why? If Jesus is your everything, why would you not leave any stone and tent to help you become more like him? If you really love him. I think anyone who wants to help me love my wife more, I would very much gladly like that. Even if it's painful for me. Because if not, I'm not really loving my wife. So we must ask ourselves, how vulnerable are we with one another? How proactive are we to allow people to help us detect any secret opposition in our lives? And of course, church membership is precisely designed for that. But friends, what I found in our fellowship is that many of us are just church members in name only. And so we have to ask ourselves, if we are members, where are we in terms of true vulnerability with one another? 
Because we don't want to end up with Judas. And actually the church, you know, the church is God's gift to us to prevent that shipwreck. So, if you have to resurrender to Jesus, I encourage you this evening to take this issue seriously. I ask the Lord to help you be vulnerable with others. And actually, offer yourself to other people in the fellowship to help them feel comfortable to share painful truths so that you can disciple them with love. So it's a two-way thing. <laughs> we have to be accessible to people. So they can see us as people they can share, so we can help them in their work with Christ, and we ourselves have to be vulnerable. Now, I'm not saying that will solve everything. I find it com- you know, encouraging that it's Jesus who was at the end of Judas, God. And so there's a limit to what we can do. If Jesus is Judas, humanly speaking, there will always be people we can't help. But we should make ourselves vulnerable and encourage people to come to us, to, to, to help us examine ourselves. Because, for the first point, Jesus faces secret opposition. That is our first point. The second point I want us to see in this passage is that Jesus does not just face secret opposition. Jesus also faces subtle opposition. Subtle opposition. Let's look at verse 20. We see that Jesus, in verse 19 onward, upwards, 13 to 19, Jesus has just called his disciples on the mountain. And now Mark, in verse 20, tells us that Jesus is going home. Uh, I think probably is going to Capernaum the home of Peter. Verse 20 says, Then he went home. Now, we just pause there because we can imagine that Jesus is going home now, coming down the mountain somewhere, and he's, he's now about to enter Peter's house. Before he even gets his head through the door, Mark tells us that the Capernaum paparazzi are on the scene. The word is out. Jesus is back in town. There's more action. And so, another crowd builds up. It is now gathering. It becomes large. And it becomes so large, Jesus can't even eat. Let's read on verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. You know, notice something here. Now, Mark does not tell us what the crowd is after this time. I think the reason it doesn't tell us is because we know already what the crowd is after. The crowd, we can be sure, look, this crowd is not hungry to hear Jesus preach such that they stop him eating. Well, that would be counterintuitive. Somebody's telling you to point to God, why would you stop them from eating? No, these guys, is what we've seen before in Mark chapter 3, uh, as Jesus was by the lake. The crowd just wants Jesus for miracles. They want to plunder him, that now they can't permit him even to eat. They are so crowding him out. That Jesus, the Lord of glory, and his disciples cannot even eat. You see, the crowd does not realize that it, this at the moment. But it is actually opposing the work of God. Because it just wants to use and abuse Jesus for their own selfish end. They are allowing their material desires to blind them to eternal life in Jesus. It's very interesting. We just read from Philippians there, didn't we? Uh, 3, verse 18. Just to remind you, verse 20 says this. Uh, it says, their end is destruction. They are talking about these people who walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame. With, listen to this. With minds set on earthly things. 
And that is the similar thing we're seeing here with the crowd. Their minds are set on earthly things rather than the citizenship in heaven from where we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, this crowd has <laughs> become so fixated on human things that it is so bad that they would rather God the Son, the Lord of glory, Jesus, starve to death to meet their needs than hear him preach. And as I thought about this, I realized we see this opposition to Jesus in our day, even in our own lives, even in our own church. We see this opposition to Jesus that seeks to oppose the message of Jesus by turning Jesus into a spiritual vending machine. We see that everywhere. The earth and wealth teaching is not armless fan, it is the work of Satan. We must realize that it's a deliberate ploy to give people material needs rather than Jesus' message of truth and repentance. But I want to say that this form of opposition is not just on YouTube out there. What the crowd is doing is also found in many of us that attend this fellowship. You see, sometimes I see that people only attend church when they have a need. It's one of the saddest things you see as a pastor. When their life is going very well, they have no need to pray to Jesus and be with God's people. But as soon as people have trouble, and I've had it myself, sometimes I won't call a friend if my life is going okay. But as soon as I have a trouble, I'm on the phone and say, oh, friend, pray for me. But my friends kindly say, yeah, fine, that's okay. But I feel guilty after I'm thinking, hang on a minute, why don't I, haven't I kept this relationship going? So that it's not just one way when I have a need, I, I ask for a prayer request. But many of us treat God like that, isn't it? We, we, we only go to God's people when life has become troublesome. All of a sudden we need pr- night vigils, we need prayer, constant prayers. But friends, we need to realize that we are not different from this crowd if that's our attitude. Are we any different? Of course not. It is still a religion that is about using and abusing Jesus for our, just to solve our problems rather than having a truthful experience with him. But notice there's also another form, though, of opposition to Jesus that is subtle, of what we see in the crowd. You see, some people are like the crowd because we are more interested, listen, in demanding from Jesus rather than giving ourselves to him. This is what I saw was so insidious here. You see, there are many people in our churches who treat the body of Christ like Sainsbury's. They treat it like a service that exists to meet their needs rather than working with Jesus to grow the church. So often I find that instead of people actively serving in the local church, what they actually do is just they clock in on a Sunday and they are. In other words, they have used and abused the Sunday service, which actually a lot of workers go going to make the building nice and clean and prepare sermons, and they have not invested to in any way, shape or form. That's what the crowd is doing. The crowd, friends, the crowd, the crowd did not build Peter's house. The crowd did not give birth to Christ. No, the crowd is just using and abusing Christ, like Sainsbury's, and they are out. And we find this, as I say, in the local church. And we have to ask ourselves, 
I think it's a difficult question to ask. And I appreciate that it can sound a bit selfish. But I think each Christian should ask themselves, am I taking more out of the church than I'm putting in? I don't, I'm speaking like, perhaps I'm speaking like an economist. But I'm thinking, God has given each believer gifts. He's deposited these gifts in the church. And therefore, we must ask ourselves, am I praying? I'm not saying these are physical things. I'm simply saying, are you spending time actually to pray for people, for example, in the life of the church? Did you have a, because not all of us can do the same thing. God knows what we can do. So we must be asking, are we people that are genuinely concerned for brothers and sisters? Are we praying for them daily? Are we investing in God's kingdom? Don't think of the church. Think of God's kingdom in general. Uh, where you are at work, are you sharing Jesus with others? That's how we live in the kingdom. Are people seeing us a witness for him? And we must ask ourselves, in our relationship with Jesus, are we just exploiters or are we people that are actually asking Christ to empower us in living towards him? Because you see, friends, if we are only users and abusers of the body of Christ or Jesus himself, well, we are in opposition to Christ. We are in opposition to Christ. And this is a painful message, I know, for many of us to hear. But we need to hear it because, you see, these things are in the scriptures. And this is, we, we should not see this crowd as just there for the unbelievers. We should see this crowd as saying something about our own, if you like, crowd instinct we may have. The crowd is stopping Jesus from what he has come to do because they, they are more interested in Jesus meeting their needs and sadly as believers we can do the same. And so let us ask ourselves seriously in this area for the Lord to help us to move from the crowd and to be part of the disciples who are having to forgo even food to share ministry to the people. I always think of Peter when I think of this home. What must Peter be thinking? People have invaded his house. But he's giving it all up, you see, because he's a follower of Jesus. So truth number one, Jesus faces secret opposition. Truth number two, Jesus faces subtle opposition. Where the final truth is that Jesus faces skeptical opposition. Skeptical opposition. And we see this in verse 21. Now, <laughs> it seems the rumor of Jesus' ministry growing has reached Jesus' mother and his brothers. We'll look at them more later on uh, in verse 31 to verse 35. But it seems a rumor has reached them. And when they hear what is going on, this large crowd at Peter's house, many people following him, Jesus healing the blind and the Pharisees and others not being happy with him, the family of Jesus... I think I was thinking perhaps they'll go on YouTube and, and say, we have a wonderful son and brother. No, they're actually not happy about it. Uh, they're actually not happy about it, and they, 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 they want to come and stop him. Let's read verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, we can imagine someone at this point, when they hear about Jesus, Someone perhaps is calling a family meeting and another person is proposing, look, we have to go bring Jesus in. I mean, something has gone wrong. And this family now set off. Uh, well, we are in Capernaum, right? So they are setting off from Nazareth, 
which is probably which is 25 miles. And these days, as I said, there's no Uber taxis or anything else like that. So they are having to come a long distance just to take Jesus in. They think he has lost his mind, that he has completely lost his plot. Now, it is one thing for a misguided crowd to put their selfish interest before yours, okay? It is quite another for your own members of your own family saying these ash words about you. Terrible words. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is the first time we are meeting Jesus' family in Mark. And friends, we are meeting Mary, the brothers, etc. And it is not pretty. And instead of the family coming to care for Jesus, they want to restrain him. I just want you to see that. They went out to seize him. The word for seizing him there means to lay hold of him. Uh, it is actually used elsewhere in the New Testament to speak of arresting someone. The family have literally come out to capture Jesus, to bind him as almost Jesus himself would do to the strong man. And they want to do this because they believe Jesus is out of his mind. We are puzzled to hear these shocking and disturbing things said about Jesus and his own family. We should all that thought. But we are also praising God, aren't we, that the scripture is so painfully honest in terms of the, 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 the humanity and the vulnerability of Jesus' family. It doesn't hide anything. The family are not thinking much of him. The scriptures is not something doctored, put together. This is history. This happened. This is the family's opinion of Christ. Why are they acting like this? Well, I think the most likely answer is shame and honor. This is a shame and honor culture. And most likely they believe what Jesus is doing is bringing shame to them. It's not something that we can experience in our society, but it's found in some cultures. This is close-knit family. What Jesus is doing is bringing shame to the entire family. The brothers of Jesus also are probably thinking, look, Jesus is such a religious fanatic now. He's actually going to bring danger to us. I mean, what if the, the Pharisees, obviously they, they probably have heard that the Pharisees are after Jesus, and they're probably worried for themselves, so there's shame and honor, but it's also just fear and insecurity. Now remember, Jesus is the older brother, right? <laughs> right? Yes? So, so they're thinking, our older brother has gone mad. Uh, we need to lock him up, we need to throw away the key, because actually he might even hurt himself. And actually he's going to hurt us in the process as well. As one commentator on this passage puts it, uh, if this was in our day, the family would say, look, give the man some drugs. That would definitely calm him down. That is their approach. Now, the, the family's actions seem charitable on the surface, but it reflects a deep misunderstanding of who Jesus is, a deep skepticism of who Jesus is. But more than that, it reflects deep opposition, even for them, of Jesus. They may mean well, but actually they are deeply opposing him because they don't understand who it is that this is God establishing his kingdom. And as I thought about that, it made me realize that many people who know Jesus and even profess trust in Jesus often oppose the work of Jesus by trying to bring Jesus under control. 
Sometimes we want Jesus to work in our lives and the world in the way that fits in with our understanding of life. We want the Jesus we can control. We don't like some, some, Jesus, you know, is doing radical work here. He's exerting himself. And the family doesn't like that. And this is, why is he not eating? Why is he doing that? That's too much sacrifice. Surely that can be biblical. They have this view of what it means to follow God. And in their view, they have no room for this radical living that Christ has. And we can do the same. The American pastor, uh, Francis Chan, a couple of years ago published a book called Crazy Love. And the book sold very well. But rather than Francis Chan and his wife take the money in, they decided to donate all the royalties they had from the book to a fund they had set up, the Isaiah 58 Fund. Now, the whole point of this fund is that it was created so that the money in the fund can go to the needy people in the world. The starving, the sick, and the impoverished. And to those who were under sex trafficking. You see, Chan's thinking was this. Look, I have all this much money I've made from this book sale. Well, I think it should go to people who need it most. So that the gospel could advance. If I just spend it on things I want, what good is that? Uh, in a couple of years' time, I might even live to regret it. So he was giving all of, he gave all his money away to this fund. But you know what happened? You won't believe this. Francis Chan started receiving letters and emails from not non-believers, Christians. People started telling him and his wife how foolish and irresponsible they were with the gifts God had given them. They said, look, you should have at least, listen to this, wisely put away just 2%, 3%, just a bit of it, in case of an emergency, Francis. Why give all your money away? Who does that? They actually thought Francis Chan had lost his mind. Because Francis, they thought he had lost his mind because he was doing what Jesus would do. He was exerting himself. But I want you to remember, these are Christians. And as I thought about that story and I thought about what the family is doing to Jesus here, I realized that we all face the same temptation to reduce Jesus to our level, to control him. But friends, Jesus is not, a, is not like a modern Hollywood celebrity who lives a predictable lifestyle and is actually controlled by the crowd. You know, celebrities, they like to show up, isn't it? They sign a few photographs and stay in a lavish hotel somewhere uh, so that the paparazzi can see them, just somewhere that they can come out, uh, and, you know, so that when their photo is taken, they can be in the papers next day. And, of course, usually when the photo is taken, they complain about it. But, of course, they made the papers, and they are very happy about that. They, they pretend they are fiercely independent, but actually celebrities are owned by the crowd. You see, because what they wear and things they do, they are all about pleasing the crowds. Their behavior is dictated by the crowd. Their personal fortune is linked to the crowd. We might say they have a symbiotic relationship with the public. The public needs them, she needs them, and they are in a mutually exploitative relationship. And we may be tempted that Jesus is like that, but Jesus is nothing like that. Jesus is the Lord of the universe. Uh, his mission is not to please me, it's not to please you. 
Jesus has only one thing in mind. It is to do the will of him who sent him. How do we know that? Because it's in Mark 3, verse 35. You should scan down in the context of this. The whole point of this passage is Mark 3, verse 35. It says this, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, Jesus, the only thing that motivates him is doing the will of God. Like Francis Chan, it's all about God. And that's what we see throughout the mission of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus refuses to play to the gallery to enhance his reputation. He won't let the family cage him. He won't let the crowd even trap him forever. He's going to get away at some point. And we'll see later, he won't even bow down to the scribes. Because Jesus' mission is only to do the will of God. You see, we need to remember this important truth. Because all of us here, sat here this evening, we face the temptation to want Jesus to focus on our needs rather than the will of God. I often find myself trying to exploit and control Jesus in my own life. I often find him wanting to do things that I want rather than what the will of God. And we need to realize that Jesus is not going to be controlled like that. If you're a true follower of Jesus, you need to realize, therefore, that the only solution is to make Jesus' mission in this world your number one mission in this world. As long as you're pursuing your agenda, you always oppose Christ. But if you allow the mission of Jesus to shape how you live, you will live in a way that glorifies him. And the will of God is seen on Calvary. Because right there on Calvary we see Jesus coming to accomplish that which God sent him to do. And his mission was to serve sinners. His mission was to come and die on the cross for us. And therefore, for us to not give in to secret opposition, subtle opposition, skeptical opposition, we must keep the cross of Jesus central in our lives. You see, sadly, that's not always the case. Too often we desire Jesus to give us what we want rather than be shaped by the cross. And that's why I love the good news of this passage. Because there is good news of this passage. For many of us who miss that. Because do you notice something interesting in this passage? Do you notice how Jesus interacts with the crowd and his family? And even Judas throughout the gospel. Not one word of condemnation for Judas. Not, I mean many of us have a lot to say about Judas. Not even one word we read here condemning the crowds. And not even one word of condemnation for his family. I think that's another topic. We'll come to that. Why is that? Because Jesus is not condemning them even though they're sinning. Because why? Because Jesus has come. Has come to take this opposition in on himself. As we go through Mark, I keep emphasizing this point. You remember anything that happens to Jesus in Mark? Remember this. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is not a victim. All that happens to him is not a victim. Jesus is facing opposition here because he's allowing it in his life. He's allowing it. Why? So that we can benefit. 
Because we know that because this opposition Jesus is facing will culminate on the cross. Friends, if Jesus is not opposed all the way to the cross, there is no salvation for you and I. And so Jesus has actually come to, 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 to take on this opposition for us. There on the cross, Jesus is opposed for us. By that opposition, we are saved. And that is the good news for you and I this evening because whatever subtle opposition we have, whatever secret opposition we have, whatever skeptical opposition we have, it has all been nailed to the cross. And if we come to Jesus and hand it over, it is completely wiped out. And if we have already trusted in Christ, then we can be open about our opposition. We can ask God to transform. You see, the cross is our hope. Because the cross not only said that our position has been dealt with, the cross says there is hope for continuous transformation. There is hope for us who are, who are like John Newton, isn't it? Who are becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we notice there is opposition in our lives. So this evening, I just want to encourage you to take... We shouldn't hide from these issues. Let us admit that there is secret opposition in our hearts. Let us admit there is subtle opposition. Let us admit that we are often skeptical of Christ. We often try to control him. But let's not end there. The cross is our freedom, friends. Let's take that before the Lord. Rest in his grace and ask him to continually change us. Let us learn to pray with the hymn writer, Jenny Evelyn, who sings, May I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for thee, even thy cup of grief to share, Thou hast borne all for me. Fill me, O Lord, with thy desire. For all that know not thee, then touch my lips with holy fire to speak of Calvary, lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. Amen.